Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that we are able to gather and begin the process of gathering as a full body uh, in the near future. Uh, We thank you for your guidance uh, and for all the volunteers and for the wisdom that has gone into to doing this in a way that, that honors you, that thinks of those who are at risk, who thinks of those other than themselves at this time. And we're just thankful to be here. I pray at this time as we listen to your word and hear it preached that you would open our ears and our eyes that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not. Would you do this for your glory, glory alone, we pray. Amen. Well, this section in chapter 6 represents what many uh, consider to be uh, the last of three attempts of Satan to stop uh, or thwart the early church in its beginnings before the church moves out of Jerusalem and into Samaria and on into the ends of the earth. And we have uh, seen so far, we've seen persecution as one of those attempts um, as the apostles have been jailed or have uh, received beatings. Um, Last week, we saw an attempt uh, to corrupt the church through hypocrisy and deception, internally, if you will. And so here, in this text that we just read, we see his final use, or his final attempt in the use of distraction. Uh, If Satan can overwhelm the church, overwhelm its leadership, and pull its leaders away from their callings, then he could impose, in in a sense, a divide-and-conquer strategy to to thwart the church's beginnings. And that's what we see happening here. But, like, but it, like the others, uh, fail. And let's see why. In verses 1 to 2, we read of two very different ethnic groups uh, of Christians in Jerusalem. And one of them, the Hellenists, are claiming uh, that their widows are being overlooked in the daily distribution, uh, while Jewish converts are not. Now, first, widows, which would be women who have lost their spouse to death and have not remarried, right, in this day especially, were extremely marginalized uh, and had very little value and worth, say, outside of being uh, married and outside of, of having and raising children. And so the fact that this new community of Jesus' followers, uh, the fact that they actually are tending to those needs and caring for them is remarkable. Second, Hellenist Jews, uh, Greek-speaking Jews of the Dispersia, who were pushed out of Jerusalem uh, during the Assyrian and the Babylonian conquests centuries prior, um, were culturally different than Hebrews. Many would ask questions like, how much must Gentiles change their lifestyle if they wish to join in service to God? They would ask, how does someone worship the Lord while living far from the temple in Jerusalem? What are the limits of involvement in Hellenistic culture for a Jew who seeks to be faithful to God's covenant? In other words, there is a dominant Hebrew culture here that outsiders are trying to figure out how they fit into. And we see Paul address this also later on in the New Testament, especially when he writes to the church in Ephesus. Because as the church grows in Acts, and we all are aware of this, it has brought uh, also with it, many other challenges, many other issues to deal with. At this point, many believe the church is at about 20,000. But with growth comes other challenges, as we said. And you have to remember, at this point in Acts, the new community still thought of themselves as Jews in the sense that Christ was the Messiah. He was the Messiah of the Jewish people who is now, what, opening his kingdom to the Gentiles they called themselves the people of the way at this point, and it'll be, you know, it'll be a while before the term Christian even comes uh, to bear. So the point is, is being Jewish, even at this point, speaking Hebrew, for example, being in Jerusalem, 
right? This stuff still matters to many of them and was a big deal culturally speaking. Eugene Peterson and John Stott flat out call this an act of discrimination in Acts chapter 6 towards the Hellenistic widows. So it's easy to see the many layers at play here, both ethnically, culturally, etc. So how will everyone get along, right? right? Will the gospel be what truly unifies the church in this moment? How will the dominant culture, if you will, receive the minority culture that's at play here? It's easy to see how this third attack is probably Satan's strongest of the three. So what does the leadership do? What do the apostles do? What does the leadership of this new community do in Acts? How do they respond? This will be my focus for our time. What we might expect is that one of the apostles at this moment, right, what we might expect is, that, is one of them might step up, make a decision about the matter, and move on, right? And that wouldn't necessarily be a problem for us because they're apostles, right? They have that authority. They can do with whatever they want to do, right, in one sense. Um, we might expect the apostles uh, to completely disregard the matter because, after all, they're calling to the preaching of the word and to, to prayer and those things. Like, that's important, and uh, we don't need to see uh, that being disturbed. And so, look, we, we just have to tend to this, and we'll, maybe something will happen. We'll deal with this later. wouldn't be hard to argue against that if that's what they did, which is why what they actually did is, as Derek Thomas writes, just as bold as the problem is serious. First, the apostles do not, in this text, as we see, pen word ministry against deed ministry or waiting tables, as the text says. Those two are never at odds with each other. Both are equally valuable ministries of the church. So if we find ourselves, first of all, thinking, right, that one is more valuable than the other, we are in a bad place. You could say we are divided. But must, but, 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 excuse me. But must be pre- most, mo- both of these, sorry, mo- must be present. Um, and the apostles agree. And why? Because they were both present in Jesus' own ministry. Second, the apostles stay in their lane while creating optional lanes of ministry. What do I mean by that? The apostles clearly state it is not right that we should give up preaching of the word to wait tables. In other words, the apostles have been given a specific calling, a lane, if you will, and where it would be easy for any of the other apostles to sort of say, look, you do this and handle this over here. They instead hand the ministry off to the people to choose, as verse 3 says. Look at it again. Pick out for yourselves seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer into the ministry of the word. In other words, what do they do? They create another lane, another avenue for ministry to take place outside of their calling, allowing the apostles to stay in their own lane, holding to their calling. Staying in our lane in any capacity, right, it's a hard thing to do. Why? Because often it's our nature to want to get our hands into everything. We don't naturally trust others, some more than others, I'm sure. And see, Satan loves to play this against us and loves to play this against one another. Other times, we can think that ministry can't happen if I'm not involved. But look again at what the apostles are doing, holding to their calling, while at the same time delegating authority to others in the church to what? To do ministry. And not just delegating, as you see here, 
they actually leave it up to the people to pick the seven men who will oversee this matter. But it gets bolder. Look at who the seven are. And Luke intentionally wants to point this out to us. Look at those names. Those are not ethnic Jewish names. All seven of those names are Hellenistic. They all have Greek names. In other words, authority in the church here is actually being delegated to who? The outsiders at this point. To the ones who are culturally different. To the ones who speak Greek. right? To the ones who do different things with their Greekness. And who certainly don't look Jewish. But for this to happen, it's that dominant culture, the Hebrews in this case, who must share their authority, right? Who must hand that over in in a way. And why did they do this? Well, there's many reasons we could say, but we can definitely say they did this because their ministry mattered. The ministry of the Hellenistic Jews mattered. Their voices mattered, they would say. Their gifts mattered, we would say. And those voices don't just matter to a specific siloed out segment of the body like them. They matter to the entire body, which we will see as the rest of the New Testament unfolds, of everyone sharing in the ministry to the body. Now, we do not have to stretch our imaginations to see how the church today might encounter what such a situation. We don't have to stretch our imaginations to see how a problem in one sense like this might emerge. Right? As the church grows, as the church goes into new areas to minister, right? we can understand how these types of things will emerge. We understand cultural differences. Right? We understand insider-outsider mentalities. Our nation is having a conversation in the streets right now about dominant culture versus minority culture. Right? It's here now. And those same dynamics, friends, make no mistake, exist in the church. This is what we're reading about. So the question becomes, how do we respond to that? Do we respond to it? What does following Jesus look like? Could Acts 6 actually be a paradigm for how the church truly goes by not holding on to its authority with a select few, but delegating it out appropriately even to those who don't look like us, act like us, even speak like us? And to do so in a way that says this, your ministry matters. Your voice matters to me. Your gifts, they matter. And not just to your people or community or people like you, but to the whole body. I can only imagine what these Hellenistic Jews uh, thought when they saw the list of these seven men. Like, oh, okay, right? We're going to get some representation here in one sense. The Hebrews need to hear the voices and the ministry of Hellenistic converts as well. They need those voices in their lives. But to do so requires those with authority what to give it up. The apostles in this case and leaders in the church today. To give up their control and to delegate their own authority. Because who are we all serving in the first place? We're serving Jesus. I was drawn to Bruce Waltke's quote here. I'll encourage you to read it later. He says, the righteous are willing to what? Disadvantage themselves. To to advantage the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community. To advantage themselves. So what happens here? The apostles' decision to give this over to the church, verse 5, says, it pleased the whole gathering. Who chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. We will hear more about Stephen immediately following And Philip, who we will read about in chapter 8, and Philip will be one of the main ones that takes the gospel to Samaria. 
these men, along with Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And a proselyte means a non-ethnic Jew who converted to Judaism, but then when Jesus came, converted to Christianity. That's what a proselyte is. Right? Nicholas of Antioch. Right? These men are the reason the church actually moves out of Jerusalem in the first place. It is one of the reasons why the first Gentile church in Antioch will actually be established. And guess who's from Antioch? Luke, our author. How about that for a ministry model, right? What Satan set out to distract, what he set out to overwhelm, what he ultimately set out to divide, only grew. No one was neglected. Nothing was stopped. Nothing was divided. This section ends with the apostles commissioning these men by praying and laying hands on them. Verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to faith. Those two verbs, increase and multiplied, they are in the imperfect tense, which means what? They are continuous. They are never ending. This is the first of six more of these summary statements throughout the rest of Acts as we move on. What's the point here? What's, what's Luke trying to tell us? He's trying to tell us that the church is not stopping. Nothing can get in its way. Nothing can get in its way as long as what? We are not, not divided. As long as we are what? United in Christ. From Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. This is happening. So here's my question for you as we look at some application. Where do you want to go? Fort Worth Perez, where do you want to go? Who do you want to serve? Where do you want to reach? What areas of this community, this city, do you want to go and serve in? Because we can. We can. Some questions to consider to get us there. Is the church a place where others are allowed to share in the ministry to the whole body? Or is ministry relegated to just a few in leadership? Derek Thomas says this, that the Hebrews did not feel they needed to be in charge of everything, but were willing to share in ministry oversight. This is a lesson we need to learn. For the church to grow and to move into new areas with the gospel, we must be able to say what? I do not need to be in charge of everything, but I'm willing to share ministry oversight. Acts 6 is giving us permission to delegate our authority because our authority, what? Is what delegated to us from Jesus in the first place. So where do we need to keep doing that in this place? Where do we need to start doing that in this place? Might be good questions for us. The second, what lanes do I or what lanes do we need to stay in and what other lanes do we need to create in order for the church to do ministry? As Presbyterians, it is easy for us to jump to our two offices, elders and deacons, if you're unfamiliar with that, in an effort to what? Protect those callings. And that's important. Right? But we often fear that we might be handing those callings over as we hold on to our authority. But what I love about Acts 6 is the apostles do not hand over their calling. They actually, what, double down on it while creating avenues for others to have authority to serve the church. Like the apostles, elders and deacons should not hand over their calling. But the question remains, how are we learning to stay in our lanes while creating other lanes of ministry for the gospel mission to continue? Who are we willing to delegate that authority to? 
Where are outsiders in the church given opportunities to lead and share their gifts? Which also begs the question, just as the text is asking, who then is being neglected because of our practices? Where is their leadership visible? These are tough and perhaps even uncomfortable questions for us. But so is this text. The answer, though, to those questions comes down to one thing. Does their ministry matter? Do their voices matter? Do those outside of this community matter? And maybe more importantly, do we need their voices? Jew, Gentile, this will continue into gender, male, female, rich, poor, socioeconomic. Do I need those voices in my life? Because if we don't learn to delegate our authority and create those places and avenues for those voices to be heard and those gifts to be shared among the whole body, how are we not saying what your voice doesn't matter and I have nothing to learn from you? That, friends, is a divided church. That is exactly what Satan is setting out to do. So I ask you, where do you want to go? Who do you want to reach? Because you can. And why? Because Jesus is the head of his church, friends. This is still the continuation of his ministry. Not just in Acts 6, but in Fort Worth in 2020. Believe it or not. He is still the head of this church. He is, this is still the continuation of his ministry. And nothing can stop it. I'll end with this. Chapter 5, this section, ends with the Pharisee's name, with a Pharisee named Gamaliel speaking the truth about the church, though he doesn't believe it. And Peter and John are being arrested here for preaching Christ and, and brought before the high priests who want to kill them because they're so angry at what they're doing. But Gamaliel comes forward and simply says, guys, guys, look, we've seen this before. It's not worth punishing these men right now. Let, let it die on its own. Just like all those before. And in verse 38, he says this, and nothing could be more true. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. Verse 39, but if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. What's the point? Nothing is going to stop the church, y'all. And why? Because it's not of men. And it is of God himself. Christ is the head of his church reigning today. This is still and will continue to be the continuation of his ministry until he returns. And as if we needed further proof of this, right? Guess who is a disciple at the end of chapter 5? Guess who is a disciple of Gamaliel at this time? A young man from the tribe of Benjamin, right, named Saul, who will be a persecutor of the church, but will meet Jesus, convert to Christianity, change his name to Paul, establish multiple Gentile churches throughout the world, and write half of the New Testament. Yes, if it is of men, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to stop it. Knowing this created freedom for the early church to what delegate its authority while staying true to its calling. And the church what? Exploded. 
the only thing that could possibly get in the way of us experiencing and participating in the gospel mission that can't be stopped is us. So where do you want to go? Who do you want to serve? Because we can't. Let me pray and ask God to, te- and ask God to be with us as we continue. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the words in this text, and I pray that as we wrestle with what's going outside of these walls and wrestle with what's going on inside of these walls, that we look to you and disarm. Whether that's disarming our authority, whether that's disarming of the advantages that we might have, whatever it might be, for the sake of your kingdom, that we would look here and see what is happening and how this is moving forward the gospel mission, your church, your bride, that we would fall more in love with, with, with you and the way that you ultimately are the one who disadvantaged himself, gave up all of his glory, gave up all of his power, right, so that you might advantage who? Us. That we might become heirs to your kingdom. Would we look at that and say, where do we want to go with that? Who do we want to bring into that wonderful kingdom? Be with us as we think about that. Be with us as we go. Give us your eyes and your ears for your kingdom, we pray. Amen.